Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Thank you for listening. My name is Nick. I am joined by Dylan. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing quite well. I'm excited to start this podcast. If you're listening to this, you're probably a big fan of Twin Peaks. For anybody who hasn't seen the show yet, this will be a spoiler podcast. If you're one of those sickos who likes to be spoiled, uh, you're welcome as well. Uh, you freak. Yeah, you absolute, you absolute pervert. You know, we don't discriminate. You're welcome as well. So yeah, basically the goal of this podcast is going to be to try to take a holistic view of Twin Peaks The Return, Twin Peaks Season 3, Twin Peaks 2017, Twin Peaks uh, a limited series event however you'd like to refer to this uh, bizarre behemoth of a season. More titles than nobility. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, nobody can really seem to agree on, on what to call it. But I, I think the reason we want to do this podcast is that um, even though there are a lot of podcasts out there that did a lot of great work during the season, we thought it would be helpful to take a look at all the individual parts of the season with the entirety of it in mind. You know, I know that the mantra for a lot of us during the season was that we weren't really going to be able to know what to think about it until it was all done. And I think that was largely the case because it was constantly mutating and taking left turns and pulling the rug out right up until literally the very last scene. So... Yeah, for me, it was like... Watching it the first time through, I had to make a kind of a concerted effort not to think too much about everything that was happening and try not to draw too many weird webs of connections and things uh, that would distract me from just sort of taking in the, like, just the art of it, just the way it looks, the way it sounds, the way it's scene to scene. Um, That's how I approached it the first time through. And now going back again, it's uh, just even after watching part one. I can, I'm already starting to see like what was so opaque to me the first time. You can start to see, okay, this is clearly where this story arc is beginning. This is where this one is going. Um, and uh, that, that kind of stuff, I think, is putting it a lot more into perspective for me, which is uh, awesome, which is something that, I don't know, I didn't have a ton of perspective, I don't think, the first time watching it. Yeah, it was impossible to, you know. Mm-hmm. It was just... It was just such a, you know, there was just so much obfuscation happening at all times that it was difficult to really draw conclusions oftentimes about what it is you're watching. And um, I find that re-watching it is a very different experience because, you know, obviously you have an idea of where things are going or oftentimes not going. You know, a lot of the things that happened in the return, a lot of the plot threads that were introduced didn't get resolved, at least not in a traditional sense. Right. Um, you know, the, and, the, and then certain, and then some yeah. then yeah, and then some stuff ended up being way more important than you would have thought at first. So it's 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 interesting. 
Right. There were a bunch of scenes where I would, like, while watching it through the first time, I would almost, like, I don't know, put a tick mark on it. Like, oh, wow, that was really interesting. I can't wait to see where that goes. And a bunch of them went nowhere. So yep. um, I'm kind of looking forward to now revisiting those scenes and sort of looking at them in a different context of like, okay, I know that this isn't going anywhere. So what does it exactly mean for this? Or what else could it possibly be related to? I'm also like really awful with characters. <laughs> like I recognize faces and I recognize names, but I don't necessarily put them together until I've watched the show like three or four times. So there was a lot, like, since the cast is so massive, mm-hmm. there was a lot of things where I was like, oh, is that that person? Like, what did this person do again? And then this new scene happens, and it's like, uh, I think going over it again now, uh, I'm, I'm much, I'm, it's much easier for me to parse what everyone else probably can do the first time around, but just being able to tell the characters apart was, was difficult for me the first time around. Yeah, and there are over 200 characters with speaking roles in this show. 200? You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. 200 characters. That's so many. Yeah, it's it's an absolutely massive cast. And the other thing that makes it difficult is the fact that you might see a character and then you won't pick up with them again for another five episodes. So That's you're what like, me, yeah. So you're like, wait, what was their deal again? It was, it was a lot to keep track of, but... You know we're gonna we're gonna do our best to uh, parse through everything here, and just you know as a matter of of uh, intro here, Dylan, why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself, how you got into Twin Peaks, how you were feeling going to season three, and and how you walked away from it feeling. Sweet. So yeah, I was, I think it was about 2012 when I first watched Twin Peaks. I actually had started with David Lynch uh, watching Eraserhead like maybe a year before that and I, I loved it I thought it was hilarious I was the only person uh, <laughs> watching it who found any sort of humor in it sure um, but I, I did find it really funny um, and so but I did assume that David Lynch this guy I knew nothing about was like some sort of like you know body horror director or something like that so then when I told my friend that I saw Eraserhead he was like oh you have to watch Blue Velvet and I was like oh what's that so he brought it over my uh, my house and we watched Blue Velvet together and he said you should watch this, then you should watch Twin Peaks, because he said this is kind of like a precursor to Twin Peaks, and I didn't know what he meant at the time. But now looking back, like, yeah, definitely. Like, you can see he was toying with the Americana aesthetic and sort of blending the time, um, like, the 50s look with the 80s, uh, like, clearly set in the 80s. But I did that, and then um, I was introduced to Twin Peaks, just, I think, on Netflix. And I think from the very first episode, it that show just feels like... It's giving you such a warm hug, or at least that's how I, I felt about it. Uh, and I just, I absolutely, like, binged my way through the first two seasons, I think in, like, two or three weeks. Mm. Uh, almost not even noticing that the second season was terrible, <laughs> mostly, uh, or at least a good portion of it. Uh, I was more just like, you know, I, I had, I really had no idea what I was in for with Fire Walk With Me yet. So mm-hmm. I was still sort of watching it as this, like, this almost, like, satire of camp that sort of just became camp. And then I got to Fire Walk With Me, or the finale. Because for, for me, watching the original run the first time, I was so much more invested in all of the strange esoteric episodes, like episode three, or is it episode, or is it episode four? Or is it episode three in part four? The way that they 
if you ever look on the DVDs, they're all weird. Yeah, it's part one uh, is two. Technically, technically, the first episode is the pilot, and then the second episode is episode one. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, that. So the the first Red Room episode uh, was when I knew I was really hooked into this uh, this show. And then all of the the following episodes, like that was the stuff I really got into. You know, James Hurley and his motorcycle maybe <laughs> came came next, but but definitely sure. after definitely after all the owl cave mythology and that stuff. But then once Fire Walk with me hit me, it was like a fucking truck. Uh, it kind of changed the way I. It's weird. It changed the way that I looked at my viewing experience of Twin Peaks uh, seasons one and two because it almost made me feel like I missed the point or something like that. Um, or, or like I had preconceptions about Laura Palmer that I shouldn't have had that definitely made subsequent uh, rewatches of the original run have a lot more gravity to them. Because for a character like Laura, she's in some ways a central character um, and she's not really in the show at all. Right. She's sort of this idea that I think you really get a lot of flesh out of um, with Fire Walk With Me. And I think it was also around that time that I had seen, like, Mulholland Drive and was really starting to get into, like, Lynch's films and uh, this that sort of art style. So that I think I finished watching that in, like, 2013 or 2014. So then they announced Twin Peaks Season 3, I think, in summer 2013 2014. 2014. So, I I just remember it like made my summer. I, I was so happy because I was still pretty much in the in the honeymoon phase with the show, and I guess I still am because um, I still love the show a lot. But then all the stuff with Lynch walking away and mm. um, that was a dark day. Ima- it was, dude, and it almost made you. Th- it made me throw away my excitement, uh, not out of like anger just out of caution because I was like hey this shit might never happen um and then when he came back it was like okay he's gonna do it now it's gonna be long like it was cool but I had already sort of discarded with that first emotional uh attachment to it so when it came around like I was happy I was excited for it but it it was almost like the day it aired I was like oh shit like it's on like I wasn't in the mood yet like I I didn't geek out before so I kind of went into it cold but then the second I saw, like, the giant's face in the gramophone and those weird clicks and all, and it was just like, boom, right off the bat, 430, Richard and Linda, two birds with one stone. What the fuck does any of this mean? I'm in. I'm down. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it, it was just from that first, or even the, the, the uh, slow shot of the girl running with covering her eyes, uh, like, from the pilot, like, the slowed down version of that that they show at the very beginning of uh, part one uh, that like hit me I was like oh shit like this is really happening they were really about to watch season three of Twin Peaks like I was just and I watched that episode in every other episode every single other one uh, with the exact same level of like attention uh, and just focus something that I just do not do I have very little attention and focus <laughs> for things on the screen I suck at it but with, with this it was just I couldn't look away, and and I, I never I didn't miss a week if I couldn't watch it like right at nine. It was like disaster. I had to, um, and I, I loved it the entire time. I was not one of those people 
begging for for my agent Cooper to come save me. I was full team Dougie. I was even a bit of a <laughs> like a dick about it, where I was like, I honestly don't. I could never see Agent Cooper ever again, and it wouldn't bother me, just because I was enjoying what that what the hell was happening. It was like I wasn't really looking for a nostalgia trip. I wasn't looking for my. Uh, I wasn't looking to ship anyone like Audrey and Cooper. Mm. Uh, I, I wasn't really, except for my my one shipping thing did work out. Uh, which we'll get to around yes. episode 15 or so. Um, but, yeah, I was really into it for the, the the mystery, and the I wanted more questions. I didn't really want answers. I don't really care how Annie is. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't really, the whole the whole friggin' time, like, because there was, in the commu- within the community, there was, or at least on Reddit, there was so much animosity from the, the jump. Uh, yep. Which you can expect, yep. but me Personally, I was just completely enamored with it from the start, and uh, when it ended, not I, I. Not only did I feel like satisfied in it, I felt like that I, I didn't have to. I maybe spent a day piecing some like loose ends together, but afterwards, I didn't feel like I had to. Like I didn't really feel compelled to try and solve the mystery. I just I was completely floored by what I saw, and it let me sort of passively throughout the months be able to think on that and think on it and and to now the point where we're going to do this show um i feel like that's good because i haven't i haven't blown my head up with a bunch of assumptions from my like weird theories and if this is true then this must be true if this must be true yeah i I think um yeah i think just going off what you said at the end there it's i really think that the key to really appreciating this series in particular to the fullest is just really giving yourself over to the idea that you're, you're never really going to be able to piece everything together. Um, you're not intended to. And, you know, anyone who claims to have any sort of grand unifying theory about twin peaks is lying to themselves. Cause there, there is, there is none. You have to really be able to embrace the mystery and just sort of let it wash over you to a certain extent. You know, there, there are certain things that you can piece together and um, we are going to do a little bit of that on this show, but you know we're we're certainly not going to be uh, you know you're, you're not going to find all the answers here, folks. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be more about at least for me piecing together plot that I missed sure. out on the first time. A lot of the grander, more metaphysical mysteries are pretty you know inscrutable, but there is actually quite a bit of like earthbound plot stuff that. It's pretty vague in the show, but that you can piece together if you are diligent enough. And that stuff is actually pretty fun, I think, especially with regards to a lot of what Mr. C is up to. But we'll, you know, we'll get into that. Um, as How for about you? Oh, yeah, yeah. As for me, um, my introduction to Twin Peaks was actually Firewalk with me, believe it or really? not. Yeah, which is a bad idea, folks. Don't do that. That's bad. Do not watch so Firewalk just, with me first. Did you know that it was like a prequel to a TV series? I, I did. I did. So okay. I had seen Blue Velvet. I had seen The Mulholland Drive. And I was pretty intent on just devouring anything David Lynch at that point. I was probably, well, I guess I was probably 16 or 17, somewhere around there. And uh, Firewalk with me was the last one that I hadn't seen. And I knew that it was a prequel so I figured oh well it makes total sense that I should watch this before I watch the show which was not not the case <laughs> at all 
Um, because I can tell you that the experience of watching Firewalk with me as somebody with no familiarity with the series was by turns totally baffling and just deeply unpleasant. You I know, can imagine. Like, yeah, because all of that all of that really powerful emotional catharsis that you get from it if you have no context for who Laura Palmer is or what she meant to the town or who any of the people around her are, you know, like who's Bobby? Why do I care? Who's Donna? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it doesn't, you're just not capable of really having the same kind of resonance with it. And, you know, you're like, who is this one-armed man screaming at Laura and her father waving his pinky ring around? (laughs) Like you just... Like and then yeah, like yeah, but who is he though really? <laughs> uh, yeah, well you know, and it's just like all the cosmology just flew way over my head, and so I didn't, you know, I really didn't hate it, but I just kind of walked away from it like, ah, uh, maybe maybe Twin Peaks isn't for me, and it actually wasn't until several years later, I would say probably five or six years later, that I actually got around to watching the show. At which point I felt like a giant dummy because the show's fucking amazing. Um, and I just immediately fell in love with just its singular world and just the well-defined characters and just the really unique balance of tones that it was able to strike. You know, with the, the really campy, emotional, over-the-top soap stuff and the completely broad comedy and all the really like frightening like in- incest overtones and all the metaphysical stuff it's just I was just totally uh, you know just totally enraptured by it you know at, at least until midway through season two don't think it's controversial to say that those episodes are not very good um, you know it picks up a little bit towards the end uh, and then the finale is one of the great episodes of TV ever and uh, so, yeah, that was my way through Twin Peaks. And, of course, I have since gone back to Firewalk with me and just absolutely adore it. It's one of my favorite aspects of the whole Twin Peaks universe. But, yeah, it was um, it was a strange journey. And the, thing, the other thing about watching Firewalk with me first is that the whole who killed Laura Palmer question was never a question for me. Like, oh, I heard, man, that yeah, sucks. Yeah, that's probably the one aspect of my my Twin Peaks journey that I sincerely regret is that I was never able to really wonder who killed Laura Palmer mm-hmm. um, but it, but it was interesting I guess watching the series already knowing um, yeah well you were you were sort of you had the I guess luxury of knowing what the red herrings were and being able to look at them as that and like see I don't know how that how that was useful like as a plot device or anything like that sure yeah and then just seeing you know, the ways that maybe they telegraphed the fact that Leland was the killer. Um, right. Hard, hard. I'm not sure exactly how early Lynch and Frost knew that Leland would be the killer, but I think there's certainly moments that you could read into that, in hindsight, sort of point to the fact that he is he is the killer. So, yeah, that was, let's see, I guess that would have been around 2010, and I never considered the possibility that Twin Peaks would come back. Like didn't didn't even think that it would be possible for a second. So, you know, I, I was intrigued by the cliffhanger of Cooper's doppelganger, like everyone else. But I just never. It was just so long ago that I never really thought about it. 
And then once Lynch and Frost went on Twitter and they said their whole, you know, the gum you like's coming back in style, etc. I, to be completely honest, I was a little bit concerned. Not that I didn't want to see more Twin Peaks, but I was more focused on the possibility of getting another feature film from David Lynch. And part of me was a little worried that the last film project we ever got from David Lynch would be a sort of milquetoast revamping of Twin Peaks. You know, I had faith that he would do something interesting, but I also, I I just, I had my concerns. But, you know, as the premiere date approached and it just got closer and closer, I was able to work myself into some degree of excitement. And then, you know, the day of the premiere, I was pretty... Pretty pretty fucking hyped, to be honest. And I would say by episode three or so of The Return, I was just, like, I, I was all in. Like, I-, I just thought, like, what they're doing with this show is completely unexpected and ballsy and, and pretty brilliant. So, um, and then I would say after part eight, it really just became a full-blown obsession. Twin Peaks was all I wanted to think about, was all I wanted to read about, was all I wanted to talk about, and that really only intensified up until the end of the season. And to be honest, I've never really had that level of engagement with any other piece of media, be it television or film or music or what have you. Like, it just... It captured my imagination in a way that I didn't even, like, I just never foresaw happening. And uh, really, it's, it's, that has remained the case until right now, uh, which is why we're doing this podcast. You know, I, I really do think that the achievement that this season represents is very, is very remarkable. I, I do think it is, you know, I, I think it's kind of a masterpiece. And, that's not to say that it doesn't have flaws here and there, and we will talk about those things, you know, individual scenes that maybe we felt didn't work, or maybe some plot lines or character arcs that we felt could have been handled better. But by and large, I think that the totality of what it achieved is was really, really special. I think it's safe to say we both love this show. Um, safe. Yeah, this is not going to be the Twin Peaks is Actually Bad podcast. Uh, those podcasts are out there, but we really like this show, and I think we're both really excited to talk about it. Let's dive into part one. My log has a message for you. What else do you have on your mind? Swimming in my mind at this time, literally, is my new hydroponic indica sativa hybrid. A touch of the mythic AK-47 by way of the Amsterdam Express. It's baked into this banana bread and infused in this potent spreadable jam that's ideal for creative sojourns of a solitary nature. Wheels up. So, first thing we see in the new Twin Peaks is the prologue from the season two finale in which Laura Palmer tells Cooper, I will see you again in 25 years. Because, I mean, you, you have to do that, right? Like, I think so. Yeah, I saw I mean, it coming. 
you just <laughs> if, if you have a show where you say I'll see you again 25 years later and then you pick it up again 25 years later you have to kind of point that out and say hey we, we did that uh, and I wonder how much how much were they like should we do new Twin Peaks it's like eh maybe it's like, <laughs> I don't know it'll be 25 years later hmm. yeah hmm. yeah first scenes in my head already exactly um it's technically it's it's 25 years from fire walk with me so i mean yeah you, you it's fudged a little bit but it's it's too much fun not to just kind of roll yeah. with yeah of course so from there we see some familiar sights we see the shot of the girl running through the courtyard at twin peaks high like you mentioned before a slowed down version of that and we get a series of slow camera pushes through the halls of Twin Peaks High. We eventually close in on the trophy case with the famous, iconic homecoming photo of Laura Palmer. The camera stops, holds for a beat, theme music drops, title card comes up with that famous font. And uh, I don't know about you, Dylan, but um, many emotions were being felt by me at this point. Oh yeah, no. It was like once you saw the like the tops of those trees, and it was like oh my, like the new like, like that same feeling of like wow, this is really about to happen. Like yeah, I, I already loved the last three minutes so much, and I have what eighteen <laughs> uh, hour long episodes in front of me. It was it really was it was uh it was pretty unlike anything that I've seen on TV. Totally surreal. I just kept thinking. I, I I watched it alone, and I just kept saying out loud to myself, "I can't fucking believe this is happening." Like I can't. Yeah. I cannot believe there's actually new Twin Peaks. See, I watched pretty much every episode with my roommate, uh, who is the my friend who got me into. Or he showed me uh, Blue Velvet, and then told me to watch Twin Peaks. So we watched it together, and we were both just like kind of in the same state from the. And it was really cool to have have another person there. Uh, to just be like, dude, and him just be like, dude, <laughs> would just be both just staring at the TV, like, no, we'll talk about this after, but holy shit, look at that! Uh, it was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it's the whole experience of watching the show really made me lament the fact that I don't really have like a Twin Peaks super fan in my life that I could have done that with, yeah. like, just because there were so many moments that I just wanted to turn to somebody and be like, oh my god, <laughs> yeah, know? just like, scream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what made the in, engaging with the community actually pretty cool, like, on Twitter and Reddit with for me, like, just sort of talking to people about the... Like, I had never, I never really done that in real time with a show before. Not um, me neither. I don't really watch a ton of shows in real time either, so, like... But just to... to just this... There was so many cool ideas coming out of... Like, whether or not they were, like, ended up panning out. But it was just how everyone had sort of had the like so so many people I think had the same experience of us as like just like wow like I'm just privileged to be able to uh, be experiencing this right now. Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? It was just it was great. Yeah, I, I was definitely all over social media pretty much as soon as all these episodes ended, just because I, I just I wanted to hear what the community had to say about all of it. So. Let's see. It's worth noting that the credits that we get in this episode are different from the ones that we see in every other episode. Really? We, yeah. We see some familiar sights uh, during these credits. 
many of which, ironically, we never see again during the show, like the sawmill, for example, which is pretty perverse, I would say. Um, I'm sure a lot of people saw that and thought, like, oh, I wonder what's wonder what's happening at the Packard sawmill nowadays. Find out where Josie went. When yeah, she went exactly. Maybe she knob. got. Yeah, maybe she's no longer a drawer pull, and she's <laughs> you know running the uh, the successful Packard sawmill once again. Uh, but nope. We actually, we'll never know. Actually, nope. We never see the sawmill. <laughs> and one just absolutely beautiful shot from this that I wish wish was in all the credits is uh, just the billowing red curtains of the red room. Just a great, yes. great shot. Is that uh, how it starts? Right? Doesn't it show like the over um, like the superimposition of those with the trees? Ooh, I don't remember. I don't remember the exact order of of how yeah. these play out. But I just remember seeing that, and then like again when that happens to Hawk when he's out in the uh, in the woods. That I don't know that superimposition. I think that's something we can talk about too because that happens a bunch. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. Absolutely. So. After the opening credits, the first scene of the show proper that we get is honestly one of the more mysterious scenes in the entire show, I think. This scene here with Cooper and the being that we once knew as the fireman that we later find out, or I'm sorry, the giant that we later find out is the fireman. They're sitting together in this black and white space that many people feel comfortable calling the White Lodge now. Um, I'm not 100% convinced that that's the case, but I think that there is some compelling evidence. And we'll talk about that later. We are going to be back in this space for some very significant scenes later in the season. But just as he did in the season two premiere the fireman gives Cooper a cryptic series of clues and he tells him to listen to the sounds uh, at which point he and Cooper both look over at this gramophone and hear some really odd scratching noises that we would later hear again in part 17 of course as Cooper is leading Laura through the woods and she is ripped away by forces unknown but that many of us perceive to be Judy. But again, that is way far away. The The giant gives him a whole series of clues here. You know, as you mentioned, Richard and Linda, 430, two birds with one stone. What are your, Do you have any just general, like, feelings about this scene? And Yeah, well, I, I, I have a bunch of thoughts about it because I think uh, you're actually, you're given... This nice dose of nostalgia when you first start the show with the with the um, with that sort of like precursor before the credits and you get the credits and it's tugging on your heartstrings and then immediately you're just you're plunged into this new mystery which is where I was kind of hoping it was going to go all along. So when I so the first thing that happens is the the gramophone and when I first heard it the sounds were kind of like indistinguishable to me. Uh, like it sounded like a series of just con- continuously random noises. Um, watching it again this time, I did notice the pattern. Um, and it's relatively easy to hear it repeating. But that that sort of that level of like I was like, where the hell is this gonna go? And then all of a sudden, you're just in this very different looking space with familiar looking characters, uh, but with this completely. It's like right off the bat. It's like. 
it's like, what the fuck? What's mm-hmm. that? And yep. then, and then I think it's like, yeah, four three zero Richard and Linda, um, two birds with one stone. And it was almost like I felt compelled for a second to like go grab a notebook and just write that shit down. Um, but I didn't. Uh, I, I actually, I think it, it probably in that moment was when I decided I'm watching this show without trying to solve the mystery. Uh, I'm not going to take any notes on what this stuff is. I'm going to try to remember. Um, and I think that scene peppered the rest of my like viewing with a little like, hmm, how could I interpret that through like two birds, one stone or four, three, zero. Um, and obviously like when some of those, those things become obvious, later on in the show I was like see this is why I'm mm-hmm. not going to look for mysteries because you know but that I think I yeah, right off like I didn't even really think too much about where they were or when they were but looking back now I want to I want to say that those it feels like those scenes and the red room scenes um, they kind of like seem like they exist outside of time as we perceive it right uh, but that, but then again, things do happen plot-wise and chronologically with effects in the Red Room. Yes. So, But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're happening in the order that we see them in. So, I don't know. I kind of... I don't know, because then when we get when we talk about Part 8, which we will in more depth, but it's like, when, when did that take place? Because was that before Lara was born? Was that... Um, who knows? And then it will... So... Yeah, I didn't. I actually didn't really consider, or I, I thought it was just not worth the mental energy to try and figure out when or where the hell they were, at, at least at the time. Yeah, it's the chronology of the show is really screwy, and that became more and more apparent. I think as the season progressed, that not everything that we're seeing is happening in chronological order by any means, um, and especially with regards to all the lodge space stuff. I think that all of Mike's is it future or is it past mantra? I think that is just meant to signal to us that the lodge spaces are sort of removed from time. Like it's, it's just, you know, trying to piece together an exact chronology is probably futile. And Um, you actually get that. um, Is it future or is it past twice in a loop? Which mm-hmm. I think is definitely intentionally there to tell you, like, do, there is no, is it is it, yeah? The question is valid. Um, you're probably not gonna put put your finger on it. Sure. Um, that said, you know, I, you said you weren't taking notes or anything. Many people were, and what's funny is that some of these clues, like such as four three zero Richard and Linda, they actually do pop up again in the series, but not in the ways in which they would ultimately become significant. Like, there's a part, I forget which episode it is, where Andy tells another guy to meet him at a certain point at 4.30, 4.30. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and then just, like, nothing comes of it whatsoever. So Doesn't a lot Andy of, show up and the guy never does, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of people were just like, well, what the, what the fuck, that was it? And then, you know, Richard and Linda, we have a character named Richard in the show. Mm-hmm. So everybody just kind of assumed like, oh, well, you know, obviously the clue is about Richard Horn. Nope. Totally wasn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, just like how we had a character named Bobby, and then all of a sudden we had a character named Bob and Mike and Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, this show is just really profoundly in love with the whole double naming convention. Like, it just, it, it cannot get enough. It is it is addicted to naming, uh, to having two different things with the same name. So, that that said, even, even though it is... We'll never really know exactly when this scene is taking place. I think that there are a few clues that we can look at that might give us some idea, possibly, of what we're looking at here. So, one thing that has become a particular focus of the community since the finale, and it may seem like a small thing, but it's actually quite interesting, and the great John Thorne from Blue Rose Magazine, who's always doing great work, he's written a little bit about this as well, is Cooper's FBI pin that he wears on his lapel. Um, he's wearing it during some parts of the show and not during other parts. So he's not wearing it in this first scene, but we see him with the pin through parts two and three, and he loses it once he gets sucked through the electoral socket and switches spots with Dougie in part three, at which point he no longer has the pin. He doesn't get the pin back until part 17 when the sheriff station is just engulfed in darkness at 2.53 and we get that shot of Cooper, Gordon, and Diane walking towards the camera uh, in darkness... Uh, going towards the door that Cooper opens, opens with his his um, hotel room key. At that point, that is the next point we see him have the pin, and he's wearing it for the entirety of the show, uh, for the remainder of the show at that point. So, I think based on that, and I, I refuse to believe that that's just like a continuity error or something. Like, I, I really... I, no. I do no, the level I, of wardrobe, uh, like design that he goes into, and level like they invented a color of lipstick for Diane. <laughs> uh, like, there's no way, of, like a, something like a pin's not insignificant either. And no. I do remember, I do remember being late to this party. It was around episode like I don't know, sixteen or seventeen that uh, that I remember, I remember reading about this pin business, and I was like, oh shit, yeah. But I don't, I have no, I have no idea. Yeah. So. My best guess, and again, we'll never know, is probably that this scene takes place while Cooper is in the coma state, waiting to wake up. After Dougie electrocutes himself, um, we know that electricity is obviously serving as a conduit in the series between the worlds. Perhaps this scene is taking place like right before he wakes up into the real world and he's getting his final instructions from the giant as to what their plan is going to be once he wakes up because as soon as he wakes up he knows exactly what he needs to do he needs to get to Twin Peaks etc now people in doing a little digging about this people have some wildly varying theories about this scene that I think run the gamut from completely insane to pretty interesting uh, one one of which that I just want to shout out really quick is the idea that this scene is actually taking place last in the chronology of the show, meaning after part 18, and that when the giant is telling him, remember 430 Richard and Linda, he's actually saying, 
you know, hey, remember all that stuff that just happened? Uh, well, listen to the sounds. And he's referring to the sounds of Judy, which Cooper would recognize from the forest. And then he says, you know, it is in our house now. To which Cooper, with a concerned look, responds, it is. You know, meaning that Judy has sort of infiltrated their lodge space somehow. Not not totally crazy. I don't know if I believe uh, it, but... I don't know that I have enough... Uh... Yeah, enough to go on to like I guess call that canon, but it's better. <laughs> sure, hey, that's this is so. Here's here's my thing with theories, and it's why I don't talk to flat earthers. It's because <laughs> I'm dumb and I don't know why the Earth is round. All right, just I don't know. Someone can probably explain it to me, but then a flat earther is going to confuse me, and they're going to use words that I don't understand and explain it to me too. And I'm going to just be like, I don't know, man. You both sound smart. What do you want? So that's me with theories. It's like. It's like if they, like I I don't know I get lost. It's like uh, this happened after this after this. Uh, it's like mm-hmm. yeah, yes you are you are right because I can't think of why you're wrong. Sure yeah <laughs> but it's, no but it's fun and it's interesting that people go to those lengths too where it's like well if you look at like it's not cockamamie like insanity. It's like nope. no I took the time to look through and look at what's in the show and you assume that everything is in the show on purpose. So yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I love that kind of stuff. There, there is evidence, but yeah, it's as with all things in this show, it's it's hard to either confirm or refute a lot of it. So, from there, we cut to the quote unquote real world, and we are introduced to our first Twin Peaks character, Doctor Jacoby, <laughs> which, in a very voyeuristic. Uh, fashion I, I felt like how so a lot of the, the camera work seemed to be all behind the trees moving I don't know it took me a second to I don't know I mean just this is my first impression watching it I was like oh this almost seems like someone is spying on him I don't know why yeah you're right it's it's pretty much all filmed through like really wide shots pretty much you know you don't really get get any close-ups and uh I firmly believe in my soul that the reason this scene is our first reintroduction to any new Twin Peaks resident is because David Lynch just loves that cheesy little gimmick with the with the glasses where he's wearing the the dark sunglasses and then flips it up to reveal his classic oh, uh, yeah. red and blue David Jacoby glasses. Oh my god. That's Brilliant. that's just a that's a classic bit right there. And I, I firmly believe that that's the whole reason that this scene comes first. Because really it there's no reason that it needs to be this early. No, um, I think it's just I mean, it, it's as good a scene as any. Yeah. Um we're gonna keep having significant every scene's gonna be some like mortally significant thing. Sure. Like, no, we need we need to find out where he got those shovels. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember seeing those shovels and thinking like, oh my god, is he gonna is he gonna exhume Laura Palmer's body for some sort of ritual? <laughs> well, I mean you know? the 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 original run too does uh it does present Dr. Jacoby as a very significant character from the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't And think, a pervert, yeah. so who knows what he's up to. Yeah, he's a creep, man. Um yeah. but yeah, then but then something like shovels. I don't know, it was just it was another thing. I was like, okay, another thing that I would take notes on if I were taking notes, but mm-hmm. and uh, and the shovel bit ended up being something far more delightful than any of us had guessed. Oh, beautiful. Uh, yeah, Exci- excited to talk about Doctor Amp throughout the course of this show. 
because, oh boy, is it good. So from there, we cut, rather jarringly, I would say, to one of the most beautiful establishing shots of New York City at night I've ever seen. The flyover, yeah. This is like, yeah, it's, I don't really associate David Lynch with like profoundly beautiful urban cityscapes like this. And it's obviously a drone shot, but it was just, it was a real shock. And it's also introducing us to the idea that this show is going to expand far beyond Twin Peaks. That's how I took it too. It was like, oh, it's like, oh, we're in this weird lodge space. Oh, now we're in Twin Peaks, apparently. Now we're in New York City. It's like, damn, like right right away, right off the bat. It's definitely establishing that we're... And even, I think, when the fireman says to Cooper, you are far away, I think that that was a bit of a, you know, a leading mm-hmm. statement as well. To say yeah. we're going to kind of, we're going to, we're going <laughs> to venture off uh, beyond the beaten path. Absolutely. We are, you know, we are getting um shifted around quite a bit here in these early episodes and from this skyline shot we zero in on one building in particular where we get i would say probably the most iconic sequence of scenes in this first episode would you agree yes definitely it's and i think it has um canon value as well within the entire show I think it's one of the more important scenes in the entire show yeah I think it's really important thematically all this stuff with the box and Sam and Tracy watching the box you know it's it's really obviously Lynch and Frost would never speak directly to this but I think it's it's not exactly subtle what they're getting at here with this metaphor you know we are Sam and Tracy watching Twin Peaks, waiting to see what's going to happen. And what we get is not something that we expect at all. And for a lot of Twin Peaks fans, probably not something that they want. Yeah, I, I think that it's really not at all a coincidence that th- these scenes are some of the first that we see in The Return. And, uh, so yeah, basically this whole, this whole setup involves a young man named Sam, a girl named Tracy, who I have to say on rewatches of this show, I really feel as though we're meant to suspect some sort of ulterior motive with her. Hard to say what, but she seems very intent on getting into this room with the glass box. You know, she looks over Sam's shoulder as he is punching in the key code, to which he responds, you're a bad girl, Tracy. You know, the security guard is, like, mysteriously disappeared when, you know, Sam goes out to meet her. It's yeah, it's the deus ex machina kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's... I just... I don't really have any strong theories about it, but I, I think it's interesting that we're meant to be a little bit suspicious of Tracy's motivations here. And I also am not really clear on what Sam and Tracy's relationship is. Like, I can't really tell if they're just friends or if they have some sort of relationship before. Do you like, do you have any sense of that? 
Well, she, he mentioned something about stopping by to see her on his way home or something like that the first time they meet when she can't come up. So, I don't know. It, I almost felt like they were maybe just sort of crushes or like they, they sort of like... And maybe he, maybe she worked at a coffee. I don't know, because she said she got the coffees for free. Maybe she worked at a coffee shop, and he goes in there and they flirt or whatever. And then he said where he worked, but I, I don't know because they're the way they speak to me. It's felt very cinematic, um, in ways that not every conversation on this twin on this uh, show is. It's a little it, stilted, it, right? Yeah, it's a little bit like. Um, it, it almost seems very scripted. Um, like, there is there is some sort of, like, ingenuine nature to it uh, in just sort of how how that security guard just sort of sits there and watches her, like, peek over her shoulder and, like, you know, there's no real... There, there is... I don't know. There's something there that... And I'm not saying it is... Um, that they're related in any way, but there was a, a tone there that I actually felt, too, in part 18 when you go into when they go into like whatever the pocket dimension they're sort of feeling like yeah this is real but is it is it really real like it has this sort of almost like a veneer in front of it so yeah there's sort of a there's an eerie stillness to this i think yeah and i think part of it too has to do with you're looking at a pretty surreal image when you get into that room it's that crazy glass box with all of the technology and all of the, the uh like in the first thing that in my head popped in like the first thing that popped into my head watching it was just electricity um, I was like the hum, the the mm-hmm. the whole thing, the vibe of this is um, you know has that above the convenience store type of feeling to it. So, and I when you had mentioned that there was something up about Tracy like a while ago when we were DMing, um, I you know I, th- I I kept note of that while I was watching this time around, and I do feel like there's I don't know I don't I it, part of me it too for me was like. I don't think it's ever insignificant when two characters like like bone down fully on screen. Like that's a decision that a um you know, that's that someone has to make and it's like there's a significance to I think something like that in Twin Peaks. And but for me most of my wondering came from like um and maybe I'm just sex obsessed, I don't know. But I was like did them like starting to hook up did that summon the being in the box or right. is it just, was it a trope of like, you know, almost like a horror movie, um, where like they just so happened, like we, we get to witness, uh, the moment and it's this moment where this thing enters into the box. And how does that relate to like, you know, the, them two sitting, staring, watching. And it's like the second, the second they look away, they get devoured. I don't know. Uh, there's, there's still so much there that I think, as I complete this rewatch, I'm going to have that particular scene in my head the entire time. Because it happened, like you said, so early. Right away, we get such a visceral scene. And even the shots of who I presume to be Judy, or what I presume to be Judy, or Mother, mm-hmm. or whatever that entity we see in Part 8 is. Um, those shots are so fucking grisly. And yeah. like, that's, that's some of my favorite stuff about Lynch, is his uh, sort of like playing around with you know the uncanny valley almost like a human figure with very inhuman uh qualities and traits so i think you're shown that right away and then that fucking just kills two people in this very violent long it's a very long i mean 
for like a, a like it wasn't like slash cut next scene. It's like no, it's just very it sh- uh, screeches and and charges at them, and then you just see the blood kind of like fly. It, it it was it took very good care, I think, to freak you out and and really um, display this you know an aspect of this ultimate evil that um, we we have referenced throughout the series. Yeah, yeah, this is a real, hey, we're on Showtime now moment. We can do yep. this kind of shit. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the idea that Sam and Tracy having sex sort of summons the experiment slash Judy to them because I think it, it, it jives with an interpretation of what happens in the finale where... Cooper and Diane have that really bizarre and upsetting sex scene. Yes, I, I exactly. think I think the idea that like sex magic, for lack of a better term, attracts Judy somehow is. Um, I think that that's an interpretation that makes a lot of sense, especially when you sort of place th- those two scenes side by side here. Just just a, just a couple of minor things that. I enjoy about the scene. Um, they're sitting next to a little bonsai tree. Uh, oh, which yeah. I noticed which, that. <laughs> yeah, which is a nice little shout out to Wyndham Earl from season two. Um, I enjoyed that. I I also just kind of find it funny how fast they start boning down. Like yep. they have the quickest transition from make out to sex, like in cinema history. In this, like it's like that's insane. Yeah, it was immediate. It's like, it's like they make out for like seven seconds and then she just starts disrobing. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty Duh. wild. And it was, yeah, again, and stuff like that is certainly intentional. But uh, I did, I love those two actors. I loved their chemistry together and just, I, I do love the shot of her sitting up, sitting forward, staring at the box and then him sitting back just like staring at her. Just because like, <laughs> I've been that dude. Just like, look over here, look over here, look over here. Like, yeah. it, it was a really... It, I don't know. It, it distracted me actually from the context, for, which I thought was cool because it made me. I was like, the first time around, I was like rooting for this guy. I was like, dude, you're doing the dirty, but uh, make it worth it. <laughs> like you're gonna get in trouble for this. Make it worth it. Yeah. And then, uh, well, then he did. He got in more trouble than I expected him to. But that. Um, but I mean, if anything else, I just I think those uh, scenes were so well acted and really, no, like you can you can sort of tell Lynch's meticulous touch. And, and sort of just I think how they were speaking to each other throughout that scene has some significance whether or not it's literal or maybe to place you in this sort of I don't know remote like a remote like we're definitely far removed from Twin Peaks as we mm-hmm. know it yeah to, to me this scene just even upon watching it the first time just just had the the feeling of just something that was like instantly iconic just this whole set up with the box and the sex and the monster it just it felt like something it felt like a new spin on you know a familiar setup young people are having sex and they get killed this is like the this is lynch's version of that basically that's exactly how i felt that's why i was really you know mulling over like did they summon the being or is this some sort of like friday the 13th uh like the bad kids are doing again what they deserve type thing but Either either way, it was most definitely striking and memorable, and you know, like like we would mention, like this is split across part one, uh, and I think 
when I first watched it, like when I first watched the first scene or the first part of it where she has to leave, she gives him the two coffees and then she has to go and he goes back up. I didn't expect that to be resolved for a while. I thought we nope. were going to have a, 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 a good long, hmm, what's the deal with this glass box? What mm-hmm. could it be? Who is Sam? Who is Tracy? Yep. And then like 30 minutes later, it's like there is no Sam or Tracy. We don't, I don't think, do, do we see the glass box again? Maybe we see shots uh, of it. Well, we see, we do see it briefly in the next episode where Cooper appears in it. Oh, that's um, right. right. But after that, we don't see it again. I think we we see a photograph of it where where we right. see Mr. C standing there, which you know, we can reasonably conclude that Mr. C is the mastermind behind all of this setup here. He is the quote-unquote anonymous billionaire. Right. Um, but yeah, after Whoever that, we really don't Yeah, yeah, we really <laughs> don't we really don't see this again and literally any other show you're right. Would would stretch this out as like a season long mystery. Ooh, what's what's the box for? Yeah. What what's it all about? But nope. We we pretty much just we get all we're gonna get from it in these first couple episodes here. And uh, I yeah we we kind of just t- talked on the talked about the major points that happened in the scene, but it's worth noting just how prolonged these scenes are. Like we spend a lot of time with Sam and Tracy. In fact, Joel Bacco, who does a lot of writing about Twin Peaks, he's been doing a screen time analysis for this season. And according to him, Sam and Tracy get more screen time in this one episode than the log lady has throughout the entirety of Twin Peaks, including season wow. three. Really? Yeah, that, yeah that's how much... I, obviously not including the the log lady intros, but yeah, yeah that that's how long we spend with Sam and Tracy in these scenes, just really establishing like we're just gonna marinate in this thing. Like this is gonna be a slow paced show, and we are not in any hurry to get to point A, get from point A to point B whatsoever. I think part of their the success of that too was that if you and and maybe uh, for other people part of the failure is that uh, if right if it's worth noting I think that right off the bat from the fireman scene to the uh, Doctor Jacoby with the shovels now to this glass box thing the first three scenes in a row present pretty dense unknowable questions so I think the fact that one of them for me, like, got resolved, not resolved, but one of them got sort of, uh, concluded, sort of concluded or put away, uh, within that, that first episode didn't really like, it wasn't like there was a, any lack of, it's not like they screwed the pooch. Like there was so much left that, like just from that one, like even the previous two scenes, like, I, I think that's sort of, I mean, for me, that's what made it great was like the amount of just, um, uh, the quantity of of content and how how much it was uh, like how much, how dense it was and how much I could dig into it, but I think maybe for some people it was just like what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, What's I going- just imagine all of the OG Twin Peaks fans just gearing up to watch this episode, excited for the premiere. They've got their their donuts and their coffee, and they're they're ready to see some familiar faces, and they're just hyped up. And what? Yeah. 
You know? And I totally sympathize with those people for the, sure. the duration of maybe two episodes. I think if mm. you were still three, four, five episodes in complaining about it, it's like, hey man, the show wasn't. This one's not for you. I'm, I'm sorry. And and we have we've spoken too. I think, um, and not to like, not to draw lines in the sand, but I just think there is definitely like a, there's a Venn diagram between Twin Peaks fans and David Lynch fans. And then there's like a bunch of us that exist in the middle. And then there's, I think there's probably, you know, some people who are big fans of Twin Peaks, but maybe not of Lynch's recent work or, or most recent work, maybe the last 10, 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I think if you had, if you had seen what he, his output has been for the last 10 or 15 years for you to expect that it would go back to 1991 campy twin peaks on abc i think it was just a little naive uh but i but i forgive it because again the show is so strong seasons one like twin peaks uh seasons one and two are like just this it's like a it's like a towel out of the dryer it's just so nice it's like ah you love it but um and and there and i do love the moments in this in, in the return where you do get that I love the Ed and Norma stuff I loved when Bo- seeing Bobby Briggs all grown up a respectable man and like I, I enjoyed seeing where a lot of these characters were 25 years later but I personally would have been I think devastated if it was this kitschy sort of like uh, soap opera again I I, I don't know I, I and I'll probably say it a million times over this podcast but that's the, the the stuff that we're talking about now just like the, the, I don't know there's a, there's an element of unknowable stuff when you start talking about like the glass box and Judy and that's what I really dig into yeah I you know I, I don't want to come down too hard on, on people who were fans of the original show and weren't really enthused about what they saw with this season because like you said the original show is amazing and it is very distinct in its own right and it has a very particular aesthetic and you know a lot of people were really excited about seeing that come back and revisiting old characters and diving back into that world but I think you and I probably even more so than the original show we have a great admiration just for the aesthetic and approach of David Lynch and pretty much since Lost Highway, he's really been operating in this ambiguous, dark, violent mode. And I thought it was really exciting the way that it was implemented into here. But, you know, I, I understand why people felt sort of a little bit betrayed by it. That said, you're never really going to hear any criticisms from me on this podcast that stem from the fact that this season is not like the old show. Like that's just not really, that's not really my mode. Like I'm not one of those people who says like they, they betrayed the spirit of twin peaks or what have you. You know, I just think so much time has passed and David Lynch has evolved so much as an artist that it would have been a real mistake to try and replicate the show as it was back in the early 90s yeah and also fundamentally there is something about i don't know i don't even necessarily want to call it entitlement but uh just because you were the a, a huge fan of a show and you loved it and maybe it means something to you and maybe you spent a lot of money 
on merch and, and and stuff and you have you have definitely invested in your interest in this thing even with that said the creators owe you nothing uh, they already delivered they already delivered you already returned on your investment by loving the show so you are not owed anything from the creator and furthermore I don't really I don't know I think you can totally tell and I, and it's like it's very I think it's very noticeable when something has been made for mass appeal or there is like there's almost you know there's a very different tone I mean no one's gonna argue there's a different tone between an indie film and a blockbuster um, and it has a lot to do with who made it and why so who is David Lynch and why did he make Twin Peaks season three uh, it, long story short, it's none of any of our business. Uh, but he did. He did make it, and so did Mark Frost, and a million other people worked their asses off to make this really weird art piece that I can't believe was on television. Um, and to sort of knock it down uh, because it betrayed the spirit of Twin Peaks, it's like your little cute sentence right there is actually completely meaningless. Um, the spirit of Twin Peaks is not a thing. It's not real. I'm sorry. It's not. Your interpretation of it is your interpretation of it. But, like, your spirit of Twin Peaks exists in your own headcanon. The creators are free to make whatever they want to make. And I think it's the same with, you know, just not to go off on a tangent, but when bands create, you know, and make a new album, that's markedly different from what they've been doing before a huge departure and their original fans get pissed and they feel betrayed just personally i mean maybe i'm just biased because i happened to love the return and and maybe if i i thought it wasn't good then i would i'll be singing a different tune but i think there's 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 a huge difference between not liking it which there's a lot of stuff that i don't like but I've never felt really like I was betrayed or wronged by someone who doesn't know me creating art uh, out of thin air. Like, there's no... I think that's virtuous no matter who's doing it, um, or, or no matter, like, my in, uh, investment in the product. As long as someone is out there making, making what they feel is good art, I think that should be looked at highly and not just sort of knocked down because it didn't fit into your little peg that you wanted it to fit into really bad. Right. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. Like, I don't, I never felt as though Lynch and Frost owed me anything just because I was a fan of the original show. So, from the glass box, we go and we catch up with some more OG Twin Peaks characters. We the horns, right? Yeah, yeah, we yes. meet up with Ben and Jerry Horn. And uh, we, the impresario Jerry Horn, was just a delightful revelation to me. I think it was just the perfect direction for him to go. It was there was no other way. I think even fans of the old show saw this and were like, "Yep, that makes sense." Oh yeah, I mean, even um, you know Richard Beamer as Ben Horn is just one of my favorite characters. Yeah, he's uh, and- so good. The way he stepped back into those shoes, just within like his first few lines, it was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they sort of telegraphed the fact that he's a little bit older, a little bit wiser, maybe a little bit changed when Jerry asked him if he was sleeping with uh, his secretary, Beverly, played by Ashley Judd, and right. Ben is sort of like, Jerry, no, 
R E S P E C T. She's married. Yeah. Um, I yeah, love that. And and then when, who, who does he go? Suck it to me. Suck it to me. Yeah. Suck it to me. Oh, I, I was. So, yeah. I laughed my ass off. Yeah, it's a great little exchange. And uh, Jerry, he's there. I believe he's like, he's like eating some sort of weed treat. I'm not really sure what it is. I know he says that he's indulging in a uh, quote touch of the mythic AK-47. Yeah, he mentions an indica and then a bunch of other weed terms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just he just he just rattles off a bunch of weed stuff. And uh, yeah, that's that's our introduction to Ben and Jerry. It's not not super consequential, just getting us reacquainted. Mm-hmm. And I do like that and, it introduces us to the, the relationship or the budding relationship between. Um, Ben and Beverly. It's yes. sort of like kind of how that, that plays out. Yes, which I think is actually super sweet and one of the most underrated aspects of the show. I'm, I'm excited to talk about the way that all the Ben and Beverly scenes play out. So from there, we actually get our first glimpse of the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. We get a beautiful sunlit shot of the exterior and we go inside and we are reintroduced to Lucy Yay! And we see that her name tag says Lucy Brennan. Mm-hmm. And we get an incredibly bizarre scene with a very anxious insurance agent. And uh, he is, he's <laughs> incredibly nervous for reasons that we don't know and that we never find out. And he very abruptly storms out of the office after asking for Agent Truman... And really the whole point of this scene is to introduce us to the fact that Harry S. Truman is not in the show and that his brother, played by Robert Forster, is in the Sheriff Truman role now. This insurance guy, though, (laughs) I'm just fascinated by it because I remember there were a lot of theories about this. I I know Jeff Jensen from Entertainment Weekly had this theory that he held on to throughout the entirety of the show that this guy was going to be like the key to everything uh-huh. and that the the finale would would focus heavily on him and i just think it's funny just how many instances in this show there are of, of things like that that everybody was sure was going to be vital and just wasn't i just I just, uh, really, I adore this show's capacity for just completely just having utter disregard for what conventional expectations might be placed on it. From there, we get another abrupt jump cut to just the most classic Lynchian Lost Highway Mulholland Drive shot. Oh, I loved it, dude. That's... I, I mean, I drive a lot on the highway at night, and just I think of it every time. Whenever I just see headlights, open yep. road, darkness. It's classic. One of my and we see a car driving down a winding road at night, headlights, and it's a we sweet hear beat playing in the back. Oh yeah, we get just an absolutely thundering, slowed down remix of a song by the band called Muddy Magnolias. Uh, The song's called American Woman. And it is just very loud on the mix. Super eerie. And I gotta say, this was really the moment at which I was like, holy shit, David Lynch is back. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and I I think I even 
felt right away that this was going to have something to do with Dark Coop. Oh, totally. Um, 100%. Just immediately, yeah. That was immediately what I thought. I was like, this is the fucking doppelganger. Yeah. And lo and behold, we see a sweet Lincoln pull up and out of the car steps Cooper's doppelganger. I... When I saw this, I was I was just like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> because there was so much speculation over the years, really since the return was announced, about how are they going to deal with the fact that Cooper has this doppelganger out in the world, this evil twin. You know, a lot of people thought, oh, well, you know, we're not going to actually see it. There's not going to be two Coopers. Kyle McLaughlin's not going to play a bad guy. Lynch would never have him do that, etc. And this scene right here is really just throwing down the gauntlet immediately that, oh yeah, we are diving headfirst into this idea that there is an evil Cooper. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, it's amazing. It really, and it's, I don't know, it was just the way that like the way that the scene is set up and the way that just the way that he his presence when he gets out of the car and you can see the long hair and his grizzled face and this sort of scowl it was just like uh oh yeah. like this dude's bad this yeah. dude is bad and he he proves it <laughs> pretty much right away yeah and i love that you understand immediately just on an intuitive level what's happening here and the way that they equate him with Bob with the long hair and the jacket and everything like that yep. you just immediately understand this is Cooper possessed by Bob and uh let's let's just camp out for a second here on the costuming and just general vibe of Mr. C because it really is something special. I I love the fact that he doesn't, even though he has all the external trappings of like a badass, you know, with the long hair and the leather jacket and everything, he doesn't really read as cool. He just seems kind of off. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like he's, his hair is sort of, it's long, but it's not long enough to be flowing and majestic. It kind of just looks like it just, you want to take a pair of scissors to it. Like his yeah. skin, his skin is all tan and leathery. Like he's just been out in the sun too long. He's just, he's got this real, like just divorced dad vibe Yeah, that I get from him. Like he's, yeah, like he's just, he's got this really weird, I don't know, it looks like some sort of like a white, like snakeskin pattern button up under his leather jacket. <laughs> he He's not a badass, he just looks like somebody that you would avoid in public. He seems to me like, you know, in like just little things like his head turns and his facial gestures, you can see the lodge being that has spent 25 years like learning how to be... <laughs> Uh, like a, a person on earth or how to like interact just enough to manipulate people to do what he wants but I do I like right away I think you get this sort of uh, otherworldly feeling from him to like even I think if someone was watching the show you're right I don't think they like without sorry watching the show without context you're right I don't think they would look at that guy and go who's this badass it would be like who is this deeply unsettling uh, very creepy 
almost ugly. <laughs> and I don't think I don't think Kyle McLaughlin's an ugly uh, McLaughlin's an ugly man, but I think Mr. Quite C the has, is just like he's got this real grizzly. Looks like he's been punched in the face a thousand times, bare knuckle. But not but like you're saying again, not in like a badass way. Almost in like a he like like he's I don't know powered by fucking batteries or something. Like he's yeah. just sort of like a little rigid and weird. He's very lizard like to me. Yeah, definitely. He's got sort that sort of, of chameleon. Sort of reptilian, just sort of like blinks once every like 90 seconds type deal. Like he's just, it's very, I, I just, I, I really loved the way that this doppelganger is manifested physically in this show. So we immediately are introduced to the fact that he is an imposing physical presence by the fact that he walks right up to a man with a shotgun and very nonchalantly takes him out, walks into Beulah's and almost immediately thereafter takes him out again just by sort of waving his hand back. I love it. He pushes the, sh- he pushes the shotgun back into the guy's face with a backhand. Yeah, he, like, oh, he hilarious. hits the butt of the shotgun, which causes like the the barrel to hit the guy in the head and it's very it's very silly and the the sound design on it is really good uh, it's 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 a great great moment so are we is this are we in buckhorn south dakota during this uh, that's something that i couldn't remember watching it for the first time or watching it again i Where that's a good question i'm really not sure we don't get a title card saying no, we where don't. we are but it does have some. It has a backwoods. Uh, oh yeah, sort of feel to it. But I don't know. We'll get. I'll, I'll bring up why I thought that when we get to the scene. Um, yeah. Of, but. So we're in Beulah's place, and lots of odd little details here. Otis sitting on the chair is drinking from a mason jar that has this sort of ambiguous cloudy liquid in it. He's sitting next to a giant jug of I can't really identify what it is. It looks like bloated sausages or potatoes or something. And it kind of looks like the liquid that he's drinking is coming from that. It's very odd. I can't, maybe it's a thing and I just don't know what it is, but it just I couldn't really make any sense of it. I'll have to look uh, again. Yeah. And then there's just, like you said, it's very backwoods. There's like animal pelts just strewn about. This is the there's like antlers on the wall. It's hard to tell exactly what this place is other than just like a den for weird creepy criminals. Yes, yeah, a den of villainy. Yeah, and there's just like there's just like a guy in a wheelchair and then like another like skinny dude with long hair sitting there perfectly still. Yeah, it had a very carny uh, vibe. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and Beulah sort of looks like she she fits that bill as well. Mr. C asks for Ray and Daria, who come out, and it's worth noting that this is actually the only point in the series where we hear Mr. C referred to as Mr. C. Yeah, that's something that I caught, because I kept remembering... I would just call him, like, Evil Coop or Doppel Coop, and then I remembered... Everyone started calling him Mr. C on the, the on the subreddit, and I was always like, "Why the hell is it?" I mean, there, I knew it must be in there somewhere. And then watching it this time around, where um, 
who is it, Beulah? Says, no, Otis says it to him, calls him Mr. C. So, yep. Yeah, I caught that. Yeah, every other time we hear him referred to by name, it's always as just Cooper. Like, right. Ray refers to him as Mr. Cooper. Gordon just calls him Cooper. This is the one Mr. C reference we get. So, yeah, so from there we go to Buckhorn, South Dakota, where we get a very distended comedy scene uh, between this woman with the dog and the Buckhorn PD and them trying to get into Ruth Davenport's apartment. What are your thoughts about this scene? I mean, I, I, I liked the, uh, no, I appreciated the, the absurdity of it. And, you know, like right away, giant woman, tiny dog. It's like we're in for some sort of wackiness here. And that the way it keeps dragging out, it, it is a little uh, much. But I, uh, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was sort of a welcome reprieve. And I think even in the show, that's actually right after Tracy and Sam get mauled. So to have this sort of like goofy little scene within them with the locks, they call the, they're going to call the locksmith, and then they find that dude Hank, who's uh, super suspicious uh, or super suspect, we should say. I don't know. I, I I didn't really know at the time, obviously, what was up with it, where it was going to lead. I did not expect it to lead where it did. Um, you know, I thought maybe a dead lady in there, but holy shit! I, I don't know. I thought it was really funny, and and I. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it, to be honest. No. It's it's all right. I mean, it's kind of funny. It's mildly amusing. It just, it goes on for so long that I kind of just feel like the juice really wasn't worth the squeeze. Um, it's, it's fine. I don't hate it. It's just, it's not among my favorite comedy moments this season, though, for sure. No, it's not. Uh, it's nothing to write home about. I just kind of, I think, contextually, it, I I appreciated uh, the moments of laughter, but I agree that it gets drawn out way too long, and then for her to like have the key the whole time, it was very, it was I don't know it was all maybe you know, maybe it was like like everything else in this show completely dragged out to the point of uh, is it funny yet? Is it funny? Are you laughing? Is it funny? Um, but can can be a bit grating. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff really works for me. This this to me just wasn't wasn't one of the better ones. And uh, the the whole point here is to get into Ruth Davenport's apartment, at which point they find her decapitated in her bed, except we see that her body has been replaced with that of a portly man in his 40s, we later find out that this is the body of a major Briggs, which uh, some some people actually caught on to right away, impressively. I certainly did not put that together until it was explicitly spelled out. But, I remember um, people putting it together after his head floats by in episode three. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. I think that's where, people, where I started reading about that. But I wasn't convinced right away. No, this whole, this whole plot thread involving Major Briggs and Ruth Davenport and Bill Hastings is, uh, I think, one of the most difficult to put together out of I, I'd all agree of with them. that. I still, I, I still am not just, because I'm only a couple episodes into the rewatch, I'm still kind of looking forward to f- trying to figure out what the hell is going on there. Yeah, I, I have rewatched the whole thing and I still don't really know <laughs> what's going on there. It's it's it is it is interesting though. I think we can we can glean a few things and we'll we'll talk about that as we go along, but as of right now, 
we see Ruth Davenport has been murdered. All around her apartment are the fingerprints of a certain Bill Hastings, played amazingly on this show by Matthew Lillard. Who's just a fantastic actor in general, but he, yeah, he knocked it out of the park, especially in that interrogation scene. Um, yes. I was sweating. <laughs> just, yeah. The, just this shot of him sitting there, too, when they're like, how long has he been there? About 30 minutes. And he's just, that's long enough. Just, you could really feel the anxiety coming off of him. Yeah, every, every scene with Bill Hastings in this show is just a joy. And I love watching Matthew Lillard just squirm and sweat and stammer his way through all these scenes. It's, it's really, really great. So, Buckhorn PD comes to arrest him because his fingerprints are everywhere at this woman's house. They come to get him at his home. They take him away, and he assures his wife Phyllis that he hasn't done anything wrong and this is all a misunderstanding the police take him away and Phyllis Hastings really gets to the heart of what's important here the Morgans are coming for dinner (laughs) and this is just really throwing a wrench into her plans with the Morgans who are coming for dinner yeah it's really I mean yeah very inconsiderate of the police to be conducting this murder investigation (laughs) while they have plans with the Morgans who are coming for dinner. Yeah, so we get an interrogation scene with Bill Hastings, and it's clear throughout the course of it that he's lying about something. We don't know exactly what yet. Clearly, he can't get his story straight. The time frames don't add up. He claims to have no relationship to Ruth Davenport, which is, I Mm -hmm. think... But the way I when I was watching this, I was looking at it like he actually didn't know what trouble he was in yet. So I didn't. I personally felt like he was lying to save his ma- or like trying to not admit that he was having an affair. I don't. I didn't really. I couldn't tell if he was. It seemed more like he was doing that than trying to conceal his involvement with the zone and Briggs and all that stuff. Because it's he, the shock that he displays when he finds out that she was murdered that's when he starts to really unravel um but i felt like the majority of like his his lying and squirming seems to be like stemming from um when he said do you know ruth davenport and he immediately that's when he looks away and he goes uh name rings a bell i've heard of her and that's where it's he, he starts to sort of uh his story starts to get weird and then the interrogation process kind of narrows it down to this like one ride home I don't know. That's the thing, at least for me with Bill Hastings, is as a character, I don't know that he knew how deep he was in. Right, yeah. He he had no idea at this point that Ruth had been murdered. So yeah, so after that, we we go back to the sheriff's station where we find out that Andy and Lucy have a son. Wouldn't you know oh, it? Oh, Wally. Mm-hmm. I love and, Wally. And, uh... Wally, as it turns out, was born on the same day as Marlon Brando. Hmm. So we find out that very important piece of information. And then we see the Buckhorn PD searching Bill Hastings' trunk, at which point they find an ambiguous hunk of flesh in there. I can't really tell exactly what it is. There's a nice little... Uh, shout out to the beginning of season one here with the flashlight sort of blinking in and out like the light does in the autopsy room where they're looking at Laura Palmer's body. 
any idea what this what this hunk of meat might be? No, and I um I don't I have no idea. I always assumed that uh it had been placed there like metaphysically in some fashion because I never got the sense that, you know, like Bill Hastings is wanted for murder, but I never got the sense that he was he was the one doing any of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. My best guess, maybe, is that it could have just been planted there by Mr. C, or um, because obviously, uh, maybe not obviously, but I think it's pretty clear that uh, Mr. C is the one behind sabotaging their whole search for the zone. Um, so I don't know if that piece of flesh maybe was just placed there to implicate him. Because how do you explain a piece of flesh in your trunk? Right. Yeah, that, that's that's my read on it as well. Honestly, I think that it was probably planted there by Mr. C to gain the attention of the police and try to try to frame Bill Hastings in some way. Um, Which I think could have to do with the beheading and the placing of this body as well. Yeah, it's all weird. M- Mr. C's whole plan, as far as like placing the body of major Briggs and all that is pretty, it's pretty fascinating. And the more you look at it, the more you see how he might've been intending to manipulate the authorities and, uh, Gordon Cole and, and all those people. And it's, it's fascinating. We're, we're going to get into that, but yeah, Lynch hilariously, somebody asked him about this scene I think it was actually right after the premiere. They asked him like what the the piece of flesh was, which I don't know why anybody would would ask David Lynch anything specific about his work at this point. Mm-hmm. But he said uh, he just said uh, it's a it's a piece of meat, <laughs> and, uh, and I believe the interviewer you know espoused their theory about what it was or whatever. And Lynch just goes, "Well, it's a piece of meat to me." <laughs> it's like when he was explaining Philip Jeffries and he was like a lot of people think that it's a tea kettle it's not it's a machine but people think it's a tea kettle and that's fine too <laughs> yeah he was very upset about the whole tea kettle Jeffries thing he was like he was very he was really beating himself about it he was like this is this is my fault yeah, it's not yeah. it's not a tea kettle it's just a machine <laughs> I never know, man, how much, how, I never know when he's being purely sincere and when he is just hamming it up. Like, (laughs) I think he's aware. I think he's very, I think he's more self-aware than we might give him credit for. Yeah, I think he definitely, he's definitely, um, I think he's more in control of his public persona than people might, might think. So yeah, pretty much the last scene of this first part is the fireman looking towards the gramophone and hearing those scratching sounds once again. And uh, this is one of those episodes that does not end at the Roadhouse, which the majority of future episodes will. And uh, that's it for a very strange, unexpected part one, I would say. To say the least, yeah. Did not... um, I mean, I had no idea what to expect, but in terms of, like, tone and um, just presentation, maybe, and even just, like, the palette that it was using, I did not see that coming. I did not see the very dark, kind of, like, um, low-lit palette that you see, like, color palette that you see through most of it. Unexpected, I think, is the, again, like, like I was saying, I had no, I had no preconceptions, 
but it still managed to uh, subvert like any inkling of like a subconscious um, like reference for where it might go the whole time, the whole time through. Yeah, it's actually a pretty eventful episode, but you just you have no grounding for hardly anything that happens that I think the first time you watch it, it's hard to have a firm takeaway on it. Some people felt surprisingly comfortable making uh, definitive uh, declarations about what's happening here. I remember I heard one theory that, (laughs) this is so funny now, but the whole Richard and Linda thing was actually going to tie into uh, the Richard Nixon library, which is in Yorba Linda, California. Oh, uh, where he was born and that the series would ultimately end up there. And it was like, wow, that is that is quite a theory to put out there. But but also, if it actually happened, you would look like a genius. You know, well, that's the thing. You're re- you're actually dealing with a pretty uh, low risk, high reward <laughs> type thing <laughs> where it's like you can make. And I mean, that's the nature of clickbait, too. It's like you can make a completely blatantly uh, absurd claim that is compelling uh, and then print the retraction two weeks later in, you know, print that's half the size. Yeah, and the fun part of this season was that pretty much everybody's predictions were wrong the entire time. That's the best. Yep. We're all in the same boat. All right, and uh, yeah, that does it for part one. Uh, hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode, and uh, we hope you'll join us for episode two. Thanks a lot. Can't wait. Peace.